0: Good morning, Strong Tower. Good to see everybody this morning. If you're new around here, my name is Ben, lead pastor. We are glad that you could be with us today as we worship Jesus. If you want to grab your Bibles or your phone or device of any kind, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55 this morning. Isaiah 55 is where we will begin, looking at verses 1 through 9. And as you turn there, I just want to encourage you, if, if you haven't had a chance yet and you're looking to come to the new members class in two weeks, please let us know so we can start planning for how many folks are going to be there. I know a few of you have told me you're interested and, and need to let us know RSVP so we know for food and child care and that kind of thing, okay? So uh, please do that sometime soon. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 1, hear the reading of God's word. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen. Amen. I want to tag our text today, Come and Feast. Come and Feast. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you that your word is life. Your word speaks to us wherever we find ourselves today. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear what you are saying. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help our minds, our hearts, our whole lives be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. So one of my best friends is no longer allowed to help us move if we ever move again. He, yeah, well, I wasn't going to say any names, but... But uh, one of our best friends, when, when my wife and I were moving out of our first apartment, this was almost 10 years ago now, uh, helped us move because we didn't have much stuff. We were moving from one apartment to another apartment, and we were downsizing to a smaller apartment. So we had gotten rid of a lot of things, and we're thinking we could fit all this in just a few trucks. We got some friends with trucks, and so we, we had three or four friends come over, and we packed up these trucks, and, and it looked like you know we were... We were uh, stealing from the Egyptians or something. Like we were plundering the people. We, we just had these piles of things as high as we could get them. And so we, we all uh, get lined up as we're driving through the parking lot in the apartment complex. And the apartment complex we live in has this kind of steep hill coming out of the parking lot into the exit area. And uh, I'm, I'm in one of the trucks driving and our friend is in the truck in front of me. And I'm watching time slow down where I could almost see the future. It was going so slow, right? You're, you're watching and, and this pile of stuff in the back of the truck is topped by our table, our dining room table. And as he goes up the slope, the table begins to fall, slide slowly, slowly until it picks up speed. And then I realize what's happening. It's, it's coming out of the truck. And so it it falls right out of the truck, right onto the ground, and right in front of us just snaps in two. Like just snaps right in just two clean pieces. And I mean, honestly, it was kind of funny and shocking. I didn't know what to think. I'm like, the table just fell out of the truck and literally snapped in front of us. And so he jumps out, he's panicking, he's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and I'm like, it's not a big deal, we'll, we'll figure it out. And, and we go, we, we kind of move it off to the side, and, and we come back for it later, but we go to the apartment with this load of stuff, and we get stuff in there, and he says, look, I, I did you a favor, there's no room for a table. <laughs> we, we can just take it right to the trash can right now, because you don't even have room, and he's right. Our apartment was so small, there was no room for a table. And so for two years, we had no table, two years, nowhere to eat. And it it was strange, and I didn't anticipate how much it would really change our relationships. I didn't anticipate how much it would change because there's so much that happens around the table that you take for granted. I mean, food really connects us, doesn't it? I mean, whatever your table looks like or wherever your table is, or if you have a table, maybe you're like us, you didn't have enough space for a table, but food brings people together. And when you get around the table, you start having conversations where somebody who may have been a stranger now becomes a friend. And you have conversations that maybe change your life and change your perspective and you, you listen to people's stories and you work out conflicts and you talk about the mundane things of life and, and you have, you know, maybe confrontations around your table or you have things that happen that, that are traumatic experiences, whatever it may be, you have things that you remember around the table. And who you invite to the table says a lot about your life. It says a lot about who you are and what you value and who gets to share their stories in your life and who you want to share your stories with. And so as we come to this text, we're we're listening to God tell His people, this is who comes to my table. This is who gets to do life with me. This this is the person who, who gets to share these intimate moments and conversations. And as we look at this text, it's a very simple but powerful text to talk about who's at God's table. Who does He invite? And so we, we've been walking through the, the, what you might call the Gospel of Isaiah. right? The, the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, was so full of these images of Jesus. People have called it the Old Testament Gospel. Like there's so much that gets unpacked. And as we've been walking through this book, it's been so rich for me and, and hopefully for you. But we've been talking about these different sections in the book. And chapters 1 through 39 uh, are kind of this warning where God is saying, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I see wrong in in my people, and I want you to come back to me. And if you don't, there's going to be judgment. And, of course, they, they don't come back to God in time, and so they go into exile, and chapters 40 through 55 are now this change in tone where you have comfort for those who are in exile, comfort for those who are struggling, And then 56 to 66 is looking ahead to the future and it's saying this is what it's going to be like when I restore and I renew and I bring new life. Right. So those are the major sections and now we're in chapter 55 where he's closing out that second section. He's closing out this comfort and he closes it with this invitation. He's saying you you were in exile, you were far from me, you were running from me but now I've done everything to bring you back now I invite you, come. And, and we get to see who God invites and how He invites them. So that's what I want to look at this morning. First, we need to look at how He calls us to come needy. Needy. If you're taking notes, the first point is to come needy. Look at verse 1 in this invitation, what He says. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which was does, does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. I love that. He, he says it four times in just one verse. Come. Four times in just one verse. Come. Come. Come, come, come. And, and, and the remarkable part isn't just the invitation, it's who he invites, right? He's not inviting the wealthy or the powerful or the influential or those that have something to bring to the table. He literally says, I want the people with no money, the people with no food, nothing to bring to the table, I'm going to invite them to come, and, and they're not going to get some kind of donated free like soup kitchen meal. I want to give them the best. I want to give them this luxurious feast. The, the kind of language that he's using there with rich food was, was the fatty foods. It was the kind of foods that poor people couldn't, couldn't afford. And, and so this was the kind of feast that a king would throw for his guests. Right? That, that's what he's describing here. He's saying, I want you to come and, and eat until you're satisfied, until you can't take anymore. You, you're you're going to come to the Thanksgiving feast, is, is what he's describing. I want you to come. Come with nothing. Jesus uses this invite uh, language in his Beatitudes, actually. Listen to what he says. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? God is inviting them. Jesus is using this language of Isaiah to say, I want you to come eat with me. But notice what he says. He says, I want you to buy, or I want you to come and buy. He doesn't, he doesn't get rid of the language of purchasing, but he says, I want you to come and you don't bring the meal, or you don't bring the, the payment. You bring your poverty, and I'll bring the payment. So he, he's saying that even though this is going to be a meal that, that doesn't cost you anything, you're, you're still coming with, with basically everything paid for, but, but now you get to go through the process of, of buying and selling because now you, you have this abundance of resources because I've paid all the bills. In other words, he's, he's alluding back to chapter 53 where we saw uh, last week where he has this suffering servant who is nailed to a cross, who is suffering in our place, who's taking our shame, taking our guilt, paying the debt that we owe, right? He's saying now in chapter 55, since it's all been paid, you can come and buy with no money. You can come and eat and dine and celebrate with nothing of your own all you need to come is need it's need that's it in the 1920s there was a man named harvey Pennick who bought a uh, red spiral notebook and he bought this notebook because he was kind of starting out his career as a golf instructor and he, he would go on to be one of the most famous golf instructors and later publish a book that would be the greatest all-time selling golf book. I don't know. I don't know anything about golf books, but but this was the best seller of all time. But in 1920, it was just his little notebook that he would take notes about golf instruction. He would write down his observations, he would write down things that he had learned, he would make all these little notes that, that he kept to himself. He never showed the notebook to anybody but his son. Not a single person knew it existed. Until 1991, when he was 90 years old, he thought, you know what? Maybe someone else could benefit from this. I'm going to see if I can get it published. And so he gives it to a friend who works for a publishing company. and, And the friend read it over and he said, you know what? This is brilliant. This would sell a lot. Let me take it back to my company and see what they think. And so he left it with him. And uh, he takes it to the company. They think this is a great idea, and so he goes back to Harvey's house. And Harvey's not home, but he leaves the message with his wife. He says that the publisher is interested to give you an offer if if you'll have an advance of ninety thousand dollars. And, you know, his wife didn't understand what that meant, but she'll take the, the message to him. And so when he gets home, she told him, and then a couple of days later, they met together again with the, with the guy from the publishing company, and he could tell that Harvey was a little uneasy. He could tell that he was stressed and, and worried, and he said, so what, what's going on? What, why are you acting like this? And he said, well, I just got to be honest with you, sir, you know, this... This whole thing sounds interesting, but, but I'm, I'm 90 years old. I got a lot of medical bills, and, and there's things going on in our family. I just can't afford to give you $90,000 to publish this book. <laughs> and the guy, he laughed and he smiled. He said, No, 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 Harvey, you've got it backwards. We give you $90,000. And he just lost it because he had confused the giving and the receiving. You catch that? He, he, had, he, he, had, he had flipped it where he thought he was the one that had to give so that he could receive. And and they were saying, no, 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 we're going to give you the $90,000 advance. And, and, and this is what happens when grace really comes into our head. Like, you realize how confusing it really is. You realize how confusing it is when God says, I want you to only receive. And you hear, oh, I, I got to achieve something. When God says to you, I, I've already done everything you need, and you hear, i, I got to do a little bit more. It, it's just confusing, isn't it? I mean, it's confusing. It's even disturbing. It's disorienting because grace begins with this sense that God is, is breaking into whatever you lack. He's breaking into your mess, your poverty, everything that you don't have, and he's saying, I've done it all. And listen, if, if you don't think grace is confusing it's probably not grace. You've probably got some watered-down version of grace that that really isn't grace at all, and and you're still holding out, you're still hoping that you could do something for it. Because true grace really makes you confused. It it gets you to the point where you're like, how in the world would he invite me? How, How do I get a place at God's table? I know I shouldn't be there, I know there's no reason that I I should have a place at the table. And it's not confusing because of the giver, right? It's not confusing because God is ungracious. It's confusing because of the receiver. That you look at your life and you think, there's no way that I should be in this place. There's no way. You must have the wrong person. You must have the wrong woman, the wrong man. You can't possibly be inviting me. That should be the response. See, grace is only for those who know they don't deserve it. And St. Augustine said it this way, he said, for those who would come to know God, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third, right? Because, Because the first move of the gospel is God is coming from heaven to earth to pursue us in our sin, and yet God is not saying, I'm doing that by myself, but I'm calling you into that same move. The second move of the gospel is us then coming down out of our pride, out of our arrogance, into this humble place where you realize, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve a seat anywhere. I I don't understand how I could be there, but yet grace found me. Grace found you when you were strung out. Grace found you when you were dull and dead. Grace found you when you were proud and arrogant. Grace found you, and all you need to be found is need. That's it. You don't need anything else but your need. You need nothing but the poverty of your sin and the shame of the thirst of your soul. You need nothing. And then he says, come. But the offer to come for the needy, the broken, the the poor, the outcast, the marginalized. It doesn't last forever. And this is the second point that I want to look at is to come quickly. Look at verse 6. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon right? God's invitation is, is too good to refuse, but it's also too urgent to wait. It's too urgent to wait. He's saying, look, look, he says, seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The language is implying that it won't always be that way. It, it, it isn't going to be that God is always near, that God is always available. He is now. He's, he's extending his offer. He's saying, at any time you can come, you can be with me, I've set the table, I've paid the debt, I've done it all for you, but it's not always going to be this way. There's going to come a time where you do not have this offer. Listen, this is so close to the heart of God. This is actually among the final words that God gives in the Bible. In Revelation 22, it's really alluding back to Isaiah 55. It says, "...and let the one who hears say, come." And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. This call to come is a call to repentance. You might ask, well, what what is repentance? Isaiah gives us both sides of repentance here. He he says it's both forsaking and returning. So in the negative sense, repentance is forsaking your sin and turning away from sin, right? Right? But in a positive sense, it's turning towards God and and returning towards Him. So so you're leaving behind, but you're moving towards something else. There's these two moves that happen in repentance. And God is saying, I want you to come to me by leaving behind the things that you've been feasting on. The things that He says you've been wasting your money on. You've been trying to eat and satisfy yourself, and it's never satisfied. So leave that table and come to my table. Forsake that and come to me. This is what it means to repent. And what he's saying is the right time for repentance is always now. It's always now. You see this in the ministry of Jesus, right? When Jesus is uh, meeting with Zacchaeus, the, the, the character that, you know, if you go to Sunday school, you know all about Zacchaeus. You probably know the, the song. I didn't grow up in Sunday school, but they tell me there's a song about Zacchaeus where he's a wee little man, Right? And this is Zacchaeus, but in in the Bible, Zacchaeus was was a hated man. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. No one wanted to be Zacchaeus' friend. No one wanted anything to do with Zacchaeus. They wanted to get rid of him because he was stealing from his own people and all kinds of corruption. And so here's Zacchaeus all by himself. You know, he's got everything. He's got money and power and this, this status, but he has no peace, no joy. And he hears about Jesus... And he, he feels like, you know, there's got to be something that, that this man has. And so he wants to get a look at, at Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. And so he goes where he knows Jesus is going to be as he's coming through Jericho and the crowds are pressing in. And there's so many people. And because he's short, he can't see. And so as the story goes, he climbs the tree. And as he climbs the tree, before he can say anything to Jesus, Jesus sees him and he speaks to Zacchaeus. He calls out his name, and he says this. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today. In other words, Jesus is is saying, this is your chance, Zacchaeus. This this is not going to always be available. I'm near right now. I'm I'm in front of you. I, I am present with you, and I am calling you to myself. I am inviting myself into your life today now was the time see sometimes delay is is our default when we're wrestling with repentance and i'm not just talking to non-christians i'm talking to christians as christians call repentance the the whole of our life this this ongoing repentance sometimes we we delay and we delay and we put it off, assuming that we will always have another opportunity. We'll always have some other time where we can come to God and we can deal with the pain and we can deal with the hurt that we've caused. We can deal with the struggle in our own life and in the hearts, uh, uh, the struggles within, right? We're, we're, we're waiting. We're hoping that there might be an easier time. There might be a more comfortable time. There might be somewhere, somewhere that we can do it and it not be so painful. What, whatever it is, we're, we're waiting and we keep waiting, and we wait, and we wait, and our delay eventually becomes denial, and we never come, because we're, we're hoping that that we'll eventually do it, and, and we never do. Well, why do we delay? The first reason I think I, I want us to look at is this. It's our pride. It's our pride that we we would delay thinking that we might one day be good enough to come to God and, and be able to present something to Him. Right? One, one author said it this way, we, we would much rather be middle class in spirit than poor in spirit. We would much rather be middle class in spirit than poor in spirit. What he means by that is, is we, we love just a sense of, of self-sufficiency, a, a little sense that, that I've contributed something, a little sense that, that I've done something and I've brought something to the table and I've bought it myself and I've worked hard and I've, I've shown some progress and then, and then I'll bring it to God because then I can show that I'm good enough for God and, and He doesn't have to overwhelm me with mercy. He just needs to give me a little push. But then we never come because it never happens. Because you know if you've been in that place and you've waited and waited until you can produce something, you can't do it without God. You can't. And so the second reason is, is related, right? The, the second reason is our fear, where in, in pride, we're, we're, uh, we're thinking we're good enough. In fear, we don't believe God is good enough. We don't believe God is good enough. Can, can he really be gracious to me in my sin? Can he really handle the depth of how wicked I am, how selfish I am, how, how thoughtless I am? Can, can he really be gracious to me because everybody else in my life, when, when I share what's really going on and what I'm struggling with, when I'm vulnerable with them, it, it doesn't seem like, like they're receiving me, but they're rejecting me. And maybe God is just like them. Maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. And if I, if I come to him with my mess, then, then he really is just trying to trick me. He's going to flip it on me and it's going to end up worse. It's our fear that he's not good enough. And so our delay is often rooted in doubting his goodness. It's hard to believe that a God would be truly able to receive us just as we are. All my failures, all my shame, all my missteps, everything. Can he really do that? And in the face of that fear, God reassures us, and this is the last point, he tells us why we can come boldly. And this is the last one, to come, to come boldly. Look at verse 8. This is incredible. In verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, this passage is famous. It, it's, been a, it's been brought up and applied in so many different ways, and, and it really opens up this abyss, right? This gulf, this massive canyon between us and God. And God is saying, you know, my ways and my thoughts are, are completely different than you. And what's interesting is, is the words in Hebrew for ways and thoughts have to do with like a way of living. Like, this is the way I do my life. And then thoughts are the reasoning and the thoughts behind that living. So it's kind of my worldview or my thought life. This is the, the reason behind how I live. And uh, what he's saying is, not only am I different in what I do, I'm different in why I do what I do. There, there is such a difference between you and I, that it's like heaven and earth. We, we, we are nowhere near each other, is what he's saying. I am holy in every way, but remember the context. This is incredible to me. I, I was just meditating on this this week because this, this passage is so famous, and it gets, it gets applied to many different areas and, and many different things about God, rightly so. Right, God's plan is, is different than ours. His power is different than ours. He, he's different than us in so many different ways. But here in this context, what he's saying, he's, he's saying, I am specifically, uniquely different than you in my grace. My grace. In other words, other people might shame you, but not me. Other people might reject you, but not me. Other people might not want to listen to you, but not me. Other people might hurt you, but not me. I am different in my invitation. When I say come, it's unlike anyone else who's ever said come. I am unlike anyone else. The gulf between God and us is His grace. It's His grace. There was a man named Bobby Moore who is the captain of England's soccer team In the 1966 World Cup, and uh, it was the epic battle between England and and Germany, and and, uh, England ended up winning at the end, and it was the first time England had ever won the World Cup, and the last time in 1966, and so Bobby Moore kind of went down in history as this epic hero of England's soccer history because he was the captain of the team of the only team who's ever won the World Cup. And so that day, you know, he felt like this, this person who was elevated above everybody. It was the peak of his career. It was the highest achievement. The crowd is cheering at the end of the game. They're chanting his name, Bobby, Bobby. Everyone's so excited. And then the whole team walks up the stadium, these stairs, to go get the trophy that they had, they had won. And as he's walking up the stairs, hearing all the cheering, he's feeling good about himself, everything is amazing, until he turns the corner and he sees who's holding the trophy. It was Queen Elizabeth. And as he sees her holding the trophy, he immediately becomes self-aware and not of all of his accomplishments, not of the great achievement that he had, not of being cheered for by the stands, he becomes aware of how dirty he is. He immediately begins to wipe his hands of all the mud that's on his hands. He's covered in mud because it was raining in the game. And he wipes it on his shirt, but his shirt's just as dirty as his hands, so it's not working. Nothing's working. And then he looks down at his clothes, and everything's stained. And then he smells himself, and he reeks of sweat, and he's about to meet the queen. And he begins to panic. He can't do anything quick enough. She's right in front of him, and he just realizes, I can't do anything about it. But why did he have that instinct? What? Why did he immediately turn the corner, see her, and think, I'm filthy? It's because the way of the world, listen, the way of the world is you clean up, and then you come. But the way of God is you come, and then I clean you up. That's what he's saying. He's saying my way is completely different than your way. I want you to come and then I clean you. His ways are not our ways. His ways are shown by Jesus and the way of the cross. The way of the cross goes up by going down. It was a way of gaining by losing. It was a way of living by dying. It was a way of honor by shame. It was a way of comfort by suffering. It was a way of power through weakness. It was a way of acceptance by rejection. It was a way of cleaning by staining. I mean, think of that. As Paul said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because no one but God would choose a cross. No one but God would choose weakness. No one but God would choose death. No one but God because only He is God. His ways are not our ways, and now because His ways are not our ways, His thoughts become not our thoughts, right? Because Jesus chose the way of the cross, because He chose to take our place, dying for our sin, rising for our salvation, now the Father's thoughts toward us are not our thoughts. We might have thoughts of despair, but not God. We might have thoughts of shame, but not God. We might have thoughts of doubt, but not God. In the righteousness of Christ, those who put their faith in Him, He says, I think about you differently. My thoughts towards you are not what you think about yourself. They're not what other people think about you. My thoughts are in Christ's perfect joy, perfect favor." His thoughts towards us are are nothing but His grace, His love, His kindness, His delight. Because the gulf between us and God has been met in His grace, in His grace. And now He calls us to come, to come. And so God invites us to this feast, and the question still remains, will you come? Will you come? Will you come? Whether you call yourself a Christian or you call yourself someone who's, who's wrestling with that and thinking through what do I believe and where do I stand with God, the, the call is the same. The call is always to come. Come feast. Come eat something that satisfies. Come, come be in my presence. Come rejoice in my grace. But you can come now. You can come quickly. You can come boldly. But it won't always be there. There will come a day when you can't when you can't. And so seek the Lord while he may be found is what he's calling. Seek him while the table is set. Seek him while he's he's already paid for everything and invites you to just feast. Let's go to him together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your offer. Your offer that is so surprising, disorienting, even disturbing that you would invite us to your table. Because the kind of people that you invite to the table are not the people who are worthy but unworthy. The kind of people you invite to the table are not the people who can offer something, who can make a difference, who can change the world, but the people you offer to the table are the people who couldn't even change themselves. People like us, people who are broken and needy, poor and thirsty dead in our sin and trespasses and yet you call us so we're so grateful today Lord for just that simple invitation and Lord I pray for all of us wherever we find ourselves spiritually today as we think through our own lives and where where we're wrestling and where our hearts are I pray Lord that we would turn towards you that we would turn away forsake whatever it is that we've been Living our life towards and make our way to your feast. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet as we sing.